This morning we're coming to the next section of 1 Timothy 2 as the Apostle Paul paints for Timothy this picture of the good servant of Christ. And this morning we look at the ambition of the good servant of Christ together. Would you stand with me? And we will read this text together in unison, just two verses this morning, but I assure you it's packed with glorious truths for us to take in this morning by the grace of God. Let's read 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these verses just stir us with longing. Spiritual, Holy Spirit-given longing. We ask You this morning as we walk through these texts together that You would illumine us to the ambition, the holy ambition of the good servant of Christ, that we would be vessels for honor. Father, I pray this morning that you would make each one of us vessels for honor, for honorable use in your kingdom of God, and for use that brings you honor and glory. Father, we we pray that you would do this for the sake of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Have you ever prayed, Lord, please use me? That's, that's a common prayer for someone who has been saved, right? Who is filled with the Spirit. Lord, please use me to bring honor to your name. It's a, it's a common stirring within us. We want to be used by the Master. The Master purchased us for His use. And we want to be used by Him. Not, and, and we struggle with our motives, I understand that. But, but as we think biblically, and as we think spiritually, we think, I want to bring glory to Jesus. He deserves it. He bought me with a price. I am only precious because of the price for which He paid for me. We also pray things like, use me to point others to you for your glory. Use me to point others to you. Don't we pray things like that? We want to be used in the lives of others. We don't want to just be an island unto ourselves. We want to be used in the lives of others. Not because it's something that we get honor for, but because God has planned to save many people and bring them into His eternal glory and to satisfy them eternally. And we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of that. Is there any higher ambition in this life than those things? To be used by Christ for His glory. Is there any higher ambition? I don't think there is. And if this is your heart, then I trust this text this morning will will stir your heart as it has mine this week. Our text this morning is all about how Christ prepares His people for His use. How Christ the Master the master of the house, the master of the house of God, the people, the family of God, prepares us for his specific use. And this text is much needed, I am certain, because in this day, in the church, the visible church at large, there are many who are being used not for the glory of God, but really to spread error, isn't there? That's the context of, of these two verses. There are people who are doing dishonor to the Lord Jesus Christ and harming the people of God. And so that's why this is so needed in this context that Paul is addressing in Timothy's life. So may the Lord keep us from being such evil servants. I don't want to be an evil servant. I don't want you to be an evil servant. I want us to be vessels for honor The main idea this morning is this, by His strengthening grace, 
Remember verse 1, right? I'm keep pointing you back up the page. Verse 1, all of this is preceded by the Apostle Paul's exhortation to Timothy that he cannot do any of this apart from the strength that Christ would provide graciously through the Spirit. By His strengthening grace, strive to become a vessel for honor in the hands of the Master, Jesus Christ. So the question that we come to in this text is, how can I pursue that ambition? How can you pursue that ambition? In this text, there are three vital aspects to becoming a vessel for honor, and you see them in your outline there in your notes. Let's look at these together this morning. Number one, understand the illustration of vessels for honor. Paul gives Timothy a very helpful illustration. Verse 20, Now in a great house, There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So consider the image that Paul gives to Timothy. There's a great house. Picture it in your mind. A great house. In that house there are many servants and there's a master over the house. A mansion presided over. A mansion that is wealthy. A stately, large house. And in this house, there would be many different vessels. Vessels refer to pots and pans and dishes and utensils, pitchers, bowls, various other instruments to serve different needs of the house. The master presides over it all. And all of these different vessels are used from day to day. And so Paul refers to two different kinds of vessels. Some of the vessels he refers to are made out of gold and silver. Of course, this term refers to that material out of which the vessel is made. Precious metals such as gold or silver or bronze, whatever. Vessels made of these materials would be valuable vessels. Expensively purchased vessels. Even inherited vessels and reserved for a particular and special purpose. There's also referred to here by Paul vessels of wood and clay. Again, referring to the material out of which these vessels are made. Various kinds of wood or even earthenware. And these vessels of these common and inexpensive materials were vessels that were cheap, worthless, and were designed for ignoble or menial tasks. We see here that the vessels of gold and silver were used for honorable use. The honor here refers to the task to which the vessel is assigned or the purpose for which the vessel is acquired. Specific purpose, special use. A vessel for honor would be then something like silverware that is used by the master to serve his family. It would be the gold pitcher from which his best wine is poured. It would be the bronze mirror in which the master admires his reflection. These vessels, these instruments, were not used for any old purpose. They were set aside and reserved for a particular use. Some vessels were for dishonorable. And really, when you look at the original language, it says some for honorable, some for dishonorable. Some for honor, some for dishonor, referring to their Activity, their purpose. A vessel for dishonor would be the wooden container in which is thrown the garbage or refuse and which would even be cast out with the garbage altogether. Or it would be the earthenware pot for human excrement which again could be discarded with its contents. Here's what Paul has in mind, this image. Now, why is Paul pointing to this particular picture in his mind? He wants you to see it. Have you visualized these things as Paul explains them? It's not just giving us lessons on home economics. He's got a point that he's making. And so consider then the implication. What is the great house that Paul has in mind? The great house, again, as we explore the context and see how Paul applies this, The great house is the visible church. Visible church. Is that a term familiar to you? Visible church. It 
refers to the universal body of professing believers, which is made up of both genuine believers, that would be called the invisible church. You can't look at, I can't look at all of you and see, okay, you're a believer, you're a believer, you're a believer. No, I can't do that. The invisible church is genuine believers, truly saved in Christ. But the visible church is made up of both genuine believers and false believers. All profess Christ. Some are true, some are not. That's the great house that Paul has in mind here. Jesus makes reference to the visible church, including both genuine and false believers, in a text like Matthew 13, 24-30. Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? The parable goes something like this. There's a farmer and he sows seed in his field, but then in the night, feed, you know, seed of wheat, but then in the night the evil one comes and sows weeds or tares in the field as well. And they grow up together and at the very beginning they look the same and you can't tell the difference. And so that's why Jesus says, leave it grow, leave it grow. In the end, it will be discerned who are the wheat and who are the tares, who are the genuine believer, who is the false believer. This is the visible church made up of the wheat and the tares. And we must remember that this is true of the church universally today. And even it's true for each local church as well. There will always be among the professing church those who are truly born again and those who are still dead in their sin but wear a Christian mask to cover who they truly are. Consider the vessels. What are the vessels? Well, primarily, vessels in the New Testament refers to teachers in Christ's visible church. We can come to that conclusion by identifying exactly when this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament as an illustration for people. Let me give you a couple examples. First, Acts 9.15. Do you remember what God told Ananias Paul was about? He was going to be chosen as a vessel to suffer for his name. Paul was called a vessel there. And Paul uses that same term to refer to himself in 2 Corinthians 4.7. A vessel carrying the gospel. Both references refer to the Apostle Paul as a vessel in the service of Christ for the sake of the gospel. However, it's not strictly referred to or used to refer to teachers. Vessels could secondarily refer to members of the visible church, both true and false believers. Because there is one text in the New Testament where it does refer to believers and unbelievers in general. That's Romans 9, 21 to 23. Remember that text? The Apostle Paul. In fact, let me read it to you because I don't have it exactly memorized. So Romans 9, 20 and 21 say this, has, not, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So if we take vessels because of the context of this text, where Paul is referring to false teachers and true teachers, if we take vessels to primarily refer to teachers in the visible church and secondarily to refer to those maybe who work in the gospel following one teacher or another, then each kind of vessel or teacher is identified by what they teach and how they live, their words and their actions. Again, this explanation for the meaning of vessel and the dichotomy between Kinds of vessels seems to be demonstrated soundly in the context as we see Paul's comparison between true and false teachers. And that's most recently in verses 14 to 19. Remember that? Paul calls Timothy to present himself to God as a workman, not, no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's a description of a vessel of honor in context here. 
But then you see those who quarrel about words and use irreverent babble and lead people's faith, faith astray and so on. Examples there, Hymenaeus and Philetus, vessels of dishonor. So what are these vessels of gold and silver? They're, they are the vessels for honor. These are teachers who teach sound doctrine in context. They hold to the pattern of sound words. They live lives that have been transformed by the power of the gospel, and consequently they have lives of godliness and integrity. They speak the truth in love. They, they build up the body of Christ. They accurately explain and exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ. They guard the gospel, and they're even willing to suffer for this truth as they boldly proclaim it. These are teachers who love the people of God that have been entrusted to them. They don't labor out of greed, but do see great spiritual any, but do great and spiritual eternal good for their people. They don't labor out of sensuality, but seek to sacrificially serve those entrusted to their care. Those teachers are vessels for honor. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Vessels for honor. What do we mean? For honor here. Vessels for honor are those teachers in Christ's church whom God has saved, is sanctifying, and has chosen and equipped and set apart for His holy and redemptive purposes. Vessels for honor are teachers that are employed by Christ for works that are honorable, precious works, excellent works, eternally valuable works. Works that are productive in the church of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we mean by honorable use. Vessels for honor are teachers who, whose work brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. They bring honor to Christ by their words and their lives. But what about vessels of wood and clay? Well, they're the vessels for dishonor. These are teachers who teach false doctrine. They pervert the meaning of the words of the gospel so that the message they preach is no longer a gospel at all, but a damnable heresy. They deny the true person and work of Jesus Christ, just like we see in 1 John chapter 2. And they do so in order to accommodate their pride, their sin, and the depravity of their hearers. They would rather say what makes people feel comfortable in their fleshly desires, then tell them the truth that exposes their sin. That's a vessel for dishonorable use. They would rather tell what sells and build a following to praise themselves than teach what honors Christ alone. These are teachers who do not love their people. They say they might, but they don't really because they would rather use their people to satisfy their own desires for power and greed and praise and sensuality. In fact, their teaching will harm their hearers and lead them into more and more ungodliness like we read in the previous text and ultimately into eternal hell under the wrath of God. These teachers are described perfectly throughout letters like 1 and 2 Timothy or 2 Peter or Jude. You see a description of these. These are vessels for dishonor. And what, what does Paul mean when he says exactly dishonor, dishonorable? Vessels for dishonor are those teachers who have become apostate, whom God has allowed to continue in their own desires, in their own depravity, in their deception and whom He has endured with patience, as Romans 9 says, and yet woven them into the fabric of His sovereign plan for the ages to accomplish His secret purposes, however bitter their work and bitter their end may be. Vessels for dishonorable use. Vessels for dishonor are those teachers whose work is depravity, whose words are deception, whose end is destruction, and yet by whose lives God still receives glory as they exist as dark blots against the backdrop of His righteousness, His justice, His power, and His wrath. So this illustration, as we see this comparison between 
vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable. It's meant to stir within us something, something spiritually powerful, a great desire to become a vessel for honor in the hands of Christ. And to, and to never slide toward the message and lifestyle of a vessel for, honor, for dishonor. Now, let me bring this to bear on all of us in this way. Not all of us will become elders, and that's fine. But all of us can strive to become teachers of the truth and models of Christ-likeness in whatever capacity God grants to us and whomever He entrusts into our care. And in that way, each of us can become vessels for honor. God can use each one of us to speak truth and to live lives of holiness. To use us. Every believer has an opportunity to teach. Right? Maybe not in the same capacity. Elders teach the precious people of God purchased by the blood whom God has entrusted them. Husbands teach wives. Parents teach children. Men teach men. Women teach women. We all can teach. We all can deliver the gospel through the vessel that God has appointed to us. So by His strengthening grace, strive to become a vessel for honor in the hands of the Master, Jesus Christ. Those whom God would set apart to speak truth and serve His people in holiness for His glory. So, do you want that? You see, you see the two comparisons here in Paul's illustration? Are the implications clear? I don't want to be a vessel for dishonorable use. I know you don't. So, if you and I desire to become a vessel for honor, what should we do? The desire in the question is anticipated by Paul and immediately answered by the next verse, the next phrase, even the next word. That, that this transitional therefore implies all of that. Isn't that something? Paul takes an illustration and he knows exactly what we're going to, how we're going to respond to it. Well, I want to be a, a vessel of gold and silver. I want to be a vessel for God's, Christ's honorable use. Therefore, okay. Number two, obey the exhortation to vessels for honor. It's, a, it's an exhortation that's implied here. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Oh, that's what I want to hear. Well, what does that mean? How do I do that? How, does that? how is that possible? If you and I want to be a vessel for honorable use, then we must cleanse ourselves from the things that are dishonorable. What does that mean? The things, Paul writes, that are dishonorable. Well, first, consider the refuse to be cleansed. What, what is he talking about? What, is, what are the things that are dishonorable? And in light of the text, again, I think it's clear. The context shows us. That which is dishonorable refers back to the deceptive teachings of the false teachers. Again, we're connecting this, what is dishonorable, with these vessels for dishonorable use. What are those things? The, the deceptive teaching, the wicked practices, behaviors of the false teacher, even, even associations with the false teacher, which Paul calls vessels for dishonor. In other words, we're not to entertain with any kind of curious acceptance or teachable openness any kind of false teaching. There's a way to approach false teaching that's right and there's a way that's wrong. A way that's right is to exhort and expose it with the Scripture. A way that's wrong is to be open to it. To be humbly teachable before it. To be acceptingly curious. No, Paul says, cleanse that from you. We don't play with false teaching. It's too dangerous. We're not, we're not individually, inherently totally free from the damage of false teaching. We're not immune to it. That's the word I'm looking for. Not apart from Christ in the Scriptures. It's possible for us to be deceived. 
So we're not to entertain false teaching, but also we're not to associate by mutual ministry partnerships with those who teach false teaching. That's another aspect or application of cleansing ourselves from what is dishonorable. It's easy for fear of, how shall we say, for fear of rejection, for not looking like we want to get in with the popular religious community, to, it's easy to just get right in and overlook the error and the, and the fundamental differences and just link arms with anybody to promote ministry and service in the community. No, Paul says we, we can't do that. We're not to associate by mutual ministry partnerships with those who teach false doctrine. And a third application of that, we, we're not to embrace then the sensual, greedy, worldly, wicked, sinful behaviors and practices of those who teach such doctrines. The doctrine, the association, and the sin of the life, Paul says, is to be cleansed from ourselves. Ephesians 5, 3-11, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as it is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or pure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and true and right. And try to discern what, the, what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Do you hear that? the urgent seriousness in Paul's words as he talks about these things? You know, sometimes we find ourselves even joking about false teaching or immorality and sin. Why would we even joke about that? Really? Why would we even play with it in our minds and hearts? Those things that bring upon people the wrath of God. Wow. False teaching, false teachers, and all the perverse behaviors that accompany such doctrine and people have no place with a vessel for honor. Please understand that this command not to associate with a false teacher does not mean that we must not associate with their harassed followers. That, I want to make a distinction here for us. Please understand this. I don't want us to undo all the things that we were talking about a few Sundays ago about welcoming people. All we said a couple of few Sundays ago about welcoming people does not apply to a false teacher. It does apply to their harassed followers, however. Even Jesus. Remember Jesus? And he said he looked on the multitudes and was moved with compassion because they knew, he knew they were harassed and needed a shepherd. You see? That's, that's our heart for the followers. We can associate with them other believers who are, or even unbelievers who are being led astray by error. In fact, we must seek some kind of association with the harassed individuals and their following so that we may be used by God to rescue them. Just, just as Jude teaches, listen, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That is the lifestyle of someone who is cleansing himself from what is dishonorable. That's his passion. Now, having considered the, the refuse to be cleansed, let us consider also the response of the cleansing. What, what do you mean, Paul? Cleanse. There, we talked about what's the dishonorable elements that need to be cleansed. How do we even do this? Well, to cleanse means to purge out, to clean thoroughly. It's a verb that indicates a decisive action. Certainly one that's, that doesn't stop from, from the moment we begin to, to the moment we enter eternity, but it's something that 
apparently begins with a decisive, spirit-empowered commitment. We are to thoroughly cleanse and purge from our lives all false doctrine, all mutual ministry partnerships with false teachers, and the sinful practices that accompany such doctrine that may be in our lives. But how do we do that? Again, by the, by the strength of Christ alone, verse 1, right? By the strength of Christ alone. We commit ourselves to walking in repentance. That's what that is. Commit ourselves by His grace to walk in repentance from sin, taking our sin to Christ for His cleansing. We move to the light, not away from it. Right? That's, that's the work of the Spirit within a believer. When we discover sin, we don't let it sit. We move to the light. We move to the light of Scripture. We move to the light of Christ's cleansing work. We move to the light of other brothers and sisters who can hold us accountable and speak truth to us and help us to walk in righteousness by the grace that God provides. We commit ourselves by faith to training for a life of godliness, just like Paul talked about. The things I'm going to to bring up to you, I'll read in just a moment from 1 Timothy 4. We commit ourselves to purging from our minds any thoughts that do not conform to the truth of the gospel. You know, when you think about these ambitions and these imperatives that that lead us to these cleansing, we, we must ask ourselves, why am I ever defensive about anything? Let it come. Let my brothers and sisters in Christ tell me where I'm thinking wrong and not in alignment with the Scripture. Let my brothers and sisters in Christ tell me where my life does not honor Christ because I'm living in sin that I'm not even aware of. Why would a Christian ever be defensive? Only humble and teachable when we consider these things. We commit ourselves to being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine of the apostles. And we practice these things with a humble, teachable spirit, asking our brothers and sisters to help us and hold us accountable to walk in truth and godliness. And just like Paul exhorted Timothy, we pay close attention to ourselves, to our teaching and our lives. And we persist in this until Christ returns. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, 7, 15, and 16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Or 1 Timothy 6, 11-12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. How do we cleanse ourselves and Purge ourselves from what is dishonorable, again, by the strength of Christ's grace alone. Be committed to loving Christ more than anything else. Be committed to loving what He loves and hating what He hates. And to value your relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ more than any other relationship or anything else. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through following through 7 and verse One, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I'll welcome you and I'll be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
there's an expanded version of Paul's exhortation. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-7-1. And you notice the, the appeal of, of cleansing ourselves? It's because we get to be sons and daughters of God. Let that appeal drive you to repentance constantly, to fellowship, and enjoy that fellowship with your heavenly Father. Paul would say to us, cleanse yourselves from the things that are dishonorable. Or in a paraphrase from John Stott's commentary, avoid the engagement, error, and evil of these men. Cleanse their falsehoods from our minds and their wickedness from our hearts and lives. This is an essential condition of being serviceable to Christ. So by His strength and His grace, strive to become a vessel for honor in the hands of the Master, Jesus Christ. Now finally this morning, number three, desire the description of vessels for honor. Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, for honor, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. All right, I want you to see the, the grammatical connection here so that it makes sense to you. If, right, so we have a condition. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, here is the outcome of the condition. He will be a vessel for honorable use. And then there's three descriptions of that vessel for honorable use. That vessels for honorable use. Here's what Christ does in the lives of these vessels. Set apart as holy, that's one. Useful, he makes them useful to the master of the house, that's two. And then he makes them ready for every good work. And by the way, and we'll say this again probably, but set apart and made ready are all passive verbs. These are what Christ the master does to us. This is what he does to us to make us honor, vessels for honor. Now, what if Christ... By His strengthening grace enables us to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. And He graciously chooses to use us. What then? Here we have these three parts. Let's see them. Let's describe them together. Set apart as holy, useful, ready. Let's describe them and, and long for them and ask for them. These are, this is a, you could take verse 21 and make it your prayer. God, I... Christ, make me a vessel for honorable use. Set me apart. Make me useful. Make me ready. And again, I want to underscore this, this aspect of it. This is a condition-outcome relationship. If, and here is the result. If A happens, then B is the outcome. If there's the cleansing, then he will be a vessel for honorable use. So there's this action-result relationship built into this condition. Again, let me underscore this. We must not see our own efforts as the primary action in bringing about this condition and result. I'm glad Jeremy had us together as a body pray that prayer again because we needed to hear that today. This cleansing in the condition, will certainly consume our spiritual labors. They absolutely will from beginning to end. But please remember that our spiritual labors are nothing apart from Christ's enabling grace. The Apostle Paul was always speaking of his own labor to exhaustion. He said this multiple times in his letters. But never did he speak of his own labors as if they could stand on their own or accomplish anything by themselves. Paul always confessed that every effort of his was completely empowered by the work of Christ within him and made acceptable by the righteousness of Christ. That's how Paul thought about his labor, every drop of sweat. That's how we have to think about it. Otherwise, we're stepping out in our own strength. I mean, Paul's testimony was, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but yet not I. Christ lives in me. 
So the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every labor for cleansing is a labor from faith, resting in the work of Christ within, that he will indeed do what he says he will do in us and through us. This cleansing work from beginning to end, from condition to outcome, is something that is wrought within the vessel of honor by the strength of Christ. No one will see clearly enough Not one of us will have the desire of heart or the spiritual ability to so cleanse ourselves apart from the strength of Christ's grace and power and love and self-control of the Holy Spirit within us. So we have to see it this way if we're going to make any real spiritual progress at all. And if we're going to bring honor and glory to to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christ will have it that way. He won't let us get very far if we're trusting in our own strength. He won't share his glory with other people. He must receive the glory from you for your sanctification and for your progress in in your Christian life. So let's take a look at the outcome of spiritual cleansing that takes place in the life of a vessel for honor. First of all, a vessel for honor is set apart as holy. A vessel for honor is set apart as holy. You can see it right there at the beginning of that phrase. Set apart. As holy. This is clearly a work of the master in the life of a vessel of honor. It's a, like I said, a perfect passive participle describing Christ's work in that vessel. It means that Christ is setting this vessel apart for his purposes and his alone. This action of Christ, by definition, has at least two. Aspects. First, like I said, separate. To separate a person from what is common. To separate a person from what is profane or sinful or worldly. And separate that person to and for himself. To separate that person. To consecrate a person to himself. To dedicate a person to his purposes and plans alone. So that's the first part. When you see this word set apart or sanctified or whatever, it's the same word originally. First, it means to set apart. God is taking us. God is taking an individual and separating them from darkness and bringing them into his light for a purpose and for a plan. But then there's another aspect to that. It's separation, but it's also purification. That's the second part of that word. Set apart is holy. Purification. Everyone he sets apart, he purifies. He purges from the inside out by cleansing them from the guilt of sin and renewing them in heart and mind. It's the same word we use when we speak of Christ setting apart a repentant, believing sinner from the world for salvation and placing that repentant, believing sinner into the body of Christ, into the person of Christ. That's the same word we use when we talk about Christ sanctifying us or that we are progressing in our sanctification or increasing in our likeness to Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ does in the life of absolutely every one of His vessels for honor. Every bearer of the gospel, every speaker of the gospel and teacher of His truth that He uses in an honorable way. He cleanses them inside and outside, purifying their lives, renewing their minds, setting them apart from the world, from lies, from wickedness, and unto himself, setting them apart unto the truth and his holiness in order to use them for a special, redemptive, eternal purpose that he has planned, especially for them. It's like what Jesus prayed for us. John 17, 17, right? Sanctify them, same word, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Once he starts this process of setting apart, he doesn't stop. He goes, he goes on. He doesn't back out on it. He doesn't set it aside. He will complete the work he began and fulfill all of his plans and purposes in that vessel for them and through them. Right? Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it the day of Jesus Christ. Our Master Jesus Christ consecrates each and every vessel for honor, but also, notice, He makes them useful. Useful to the Master of the house. A vessel for honor is useful to the Master. This second description of Christ's work in the life of a vessel for honor is the word 
useful. It means that Christ makes a person profitable to himself, easy for himself to use. This usefulness is certainly the result of being set apart and cleansed by the Master, but it seems to me that this usefulness is kind of the next step. It's the next step in the Master's work in making a vessel for honor. This word useful only appears two other times in the New Testament. First, it's 2 Timothy 4.11, where Paul calls John, or John Mark, useful to him for service and tells Timothy to bring him. You can look at the verse. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Get John Mark. Bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's just the word for service. He's useful for me for service. The second, the other usage of this is in Philemon 1 and verse 11. Paul calls Onesimus the slave of Philemon who ran away and then ran to Paul and became a believer. Paul calls Onesimus useful to himself and to Philemon and asks Philemon to receive Onesimus back into his employee as a brother this time, not as an unbelieving, unfaithful servant. Now, uniquely, in both of these cases, the historic context indicates a change of heart in both of these men. Follow this. Both Mark and Onesimus. Mark had previously deserted Paul and his associates, Mark had deserted them in the work of the gospel and Onesimus had run away from Philemon. Both men's hearts needed to be changed by the grace of God. Their hearts needed to be changed from being fearful, self-serving, self-willed, unfaithful, to being courageous, self-sacrificing, surrendered, faithful, and willing. And that's exactly what our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, works in every vessel of honor. He brings them along in their hearts until they can truly say, Lord Jesus, wherever you send me, to whomever you send me, and whatever you send me to do, I'm willing. Not my will, but your will be done. You must increase. I must decrease. That's useful, right? That's useful to the master. That has to be the next step in the preparation of a vessel for honor before any more investment is made into that vessel. A vessel must be made absolutely willing and dependable. Christ takes men and women, sets them apart, and makes them willing and faithful in the process of forming a vessel for honor. How does he make someone like that? Doesn't he break them, right? Lovingly, through trials, through hard words of Scripture, through ministry in the body of Christ. These are God's means of bringing this about. This is how a master makes vessels useful to himself. And lastly, Christ makes his vessels for honor ready for every good work. The final description, ready. Ready for every good work. It means to be prepared, equipped, and made ready for the immediate task at hand. You have to be cleansed. You have to be willing and faithful first. Then Christ will equip you. He'll invest in you. That's his, that's his order. That's his plan. Everything is set. Ready for every good work. Everything's all set. All the preparations have been made. That's what that word ready means. And the only things left are the command. If Christ is going to use a man or a woman to channel his truth and his love as a vessel for honor, they must be made ready. They must be prepared. They must be equipped. They must be filled with the truth of Scripture. They must be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. They must be filled with a sense of the present call to service in the light of the weight of eternity. This is what Christ does to prepare and make ready his vessel so that he can use them at any given moment. Set apart, 
useful and ready. Christ gives his vessels for honor a readiness as it is described, for example, in Titus 3.1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work. In 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared. There is the same word. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Christ makes His vessels for honor ready and prepared, even at a moment's notice, to speak good news and do good deeds. Greatly honorable service for His own honor and glory. But how does He do it? By what means? How does He prepare and make ready His vessels? Three things are how He uses, I think, how He does this, how He accomplishes this in us. One, by prayerful study of Scripture. You saw that coming. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And what's the effect of that? That the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See? So it must be the Scripture that, that Christ uses to make us ready for every good work. Or 2 Peter 1, 3-8 shows us that it's by the divine promises of God and the knowledge of Christ that He grows us in Christ's likeness so that we are not barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. 2 Peter 1, 3-8. He also does it by patient endurance through trial, doesn't He? Patient endurance through trial. Boy, does He form tools by trials. No tool does Christ use without first forming it on the anvil of trials, right? You name them in Scripture, you, I, I, I challenge you to find one person in Scripture who God used as a vessel for honor that he did not first try sorely, right? James 1, 2 through 4, that's why we're called to rejoice in trials. The testing of our faith produces endurance, endurance produces maturity so that we're complete, lacking in nothing. We're equipped for all that God has planned. And by humble, faithful fellowship in the body of Christ. These are the normal means of grace that God uses to make a vessel for honor. Ephesians 4, 6 through 8, 7 through 16. We see there that through the ministry of the body of Christ, vessels like you and I are equipped to do the work of the ministry so that we can speak the truth to one another in love and we grow up in Christ-likeness. That's how Christ makes his vessels ready for every good work. Christ, the master, will take any man, any woman whom he chooses, who by his strength and spirit has and is cleansing himself or herself from that which is dishonorable, and he will set them apart, make them useful to himself, Make them ready for every good work. Have you noticed that this has nothing to do with how much money you have? Or what color your skin is? Or what your marital status is? Or any other temporary earthly thing that you could qualify people by? This is God's doing. His choice for His glory. So what ought our response to be to these three actions of Christ upon us? Prayer. God, please do this. Uh, give me the grace to cleanse myself like you say, but use me. Show me humble submission. Whatever scripture you give to me to change, Father, I submit to it. Whatever trial, help me to gain the treasure of the trial and not resist it. Childlike trust. Childlike trust. I trust you. I humble myself under your mighty hand. So by... His strengthening grace let us strive to become vessels for honor in the hands of the Master, Jesus Christ. And God will use you to do His purposes, His will, His, His, His word to be proclaimed through you in your family and beyond. Do you want to be a vessel for honor? Does this text stir your heart? You want that? Do you want the Master, Christ, to use you to speak His good news and do His good work? Do you want the Master, Christ, to accomplish His eternal purposes in you and through you? 
Do you want the master Christ to use you to bring great honor to his name? Then by the strength of the Spirit, the application is clear. By his strength, by his Spirit, cleanse yourself. Prayerfully, dependently, humbly cleanse yourself from the things that are dishonorable. Engagements with errors of and evil of those who are teachers of error. We need to examine ourselves, don't we? That's, that's the outcome, the immediate outcome of this. Examine our own hearts. What is, Father, show me what is dishonorable in my heart and in my life. Christ calls, enables us to cleanse ourselves from things that are dishonorable. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose. That's why he is ascended and reigning over us to set us free from error and evil of the world and sanctify us in the truth. So will you give yourself to that work of cleansing? Will you? If you will, then Christ will set you apart. He will make you useful. He says here, doesn't he? That's part of it. If this is what happens in your life, you will be useful to the master. It's his work. And and think of it. He will bring himself glory and honor through your life now and forever. For eternity. And dear ones, listen. Isn't it absolutely amazing that God would even choose to use any of us for the channeling of his gracious, glorious gospel of grace? Why would he even use us? You would think that God would find a better way because we are so broken and rebellious naturally. But we know what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 8 through 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's God's gracious work behind a vessel for honor. It's, it's a wonder that he would use any of us. You know, sometimes we get caught up in that thought of, wow, they are so much more effective tool than this person over there. And, you know, and I'm not saying any of that to minimize the carefulness by which we speak and do ministry. But when it comes down to it, it is absolutely a wonder that God gets anything done through any of us but he does, doesn't he? And you know what? The the dullness and brokenness of a tool brings greater glory to the master who uses it and does a magnificent work through it, doesn't it? And so we trust in Christ to use us. It's all of grace. And here's the confession of the vessel for honor. Here it is. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in vessels, in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ yet as Savior and Lord, as your Master, I want you to consider this. Everyone has a Master. Not one of us live this life without being mastered by something. And according to Paul in Romans 6, we are either mastered by sin or we are mastered by Christ. And it is a wonderful thing to be mastered by Christ but it is a horrible thing to be mastered by sin. So I encourage you this morning, if you do not know Christ, turn from your sin 
embrace the righteousness and the atonement of Christ and cry out to him to, to, to make himself your master. Romans 6, 20-23, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things, the end of the life of slavery to sin is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So dear friend, I encourage you to not spend one more day under the mastery of sin. Come to Christ and, and receive his righteousness, refusing your own. Receive his atonement, knowing you cannot pay for your, the penalty of your sin. Receive the power of his resurrection and know a new life that lasts forever and learn to be a vessel of honor by his grace. Let's stand together and, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we, we have been stirred in our hearts by this text today. And we long to be vessels for honor. And it's a wonder that your grace can make us vessels for honor. So we thank you. And we ask you to continue your work and bring great glory to yourself from our lives. And honor yourself through us by using our words and lives to call people to salvation in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.